Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Tonight we do come to uh, the second uh, part of Article 2 on God the Son, which I guess we could say without much hesitation is the central article uh, for the Christian faith. And therefore, it's not surprising that you have a fairly lengthy statement, even though it's part of the overall statement on the doctrine of God, as well as a number of scriptures that address it. Uh, Let me do something a little different tonight and start at the back on the 10th page, and then we'll come back and look at this particular article and also scriptures that are especially significant. When you study the doctrine of Christology, the person and work of Christ, uh, you traditionally break it down in exactly those two categories. His person, who is he? And his work, what did he accomplish? And we believe the Bible teaches in the Baptist faith and message statement will wonderfully reflect the fact that he is both fully God and fully man. Two natures united in one person. And so whatever it is that makes God God, he is all of that. Whatever it is that makes humans human, he is all of that apart from sin. Although we need to understand that being human does not necessitate being sinful. Uh, Adam and Eve were sinless before the fall. And uh, when we stand in the presence of our Lord someday glorified, sin will once more and forever be eradicated from our person and our presence as well. And so he is fully God. He is fully man. That is his person. But in terms of his work, we speak of a number of things, such as his sinless life, also emphasized in the statement of the Baptist faith and message, his vicarious death, also emphasized in the statement of the Baptist faith and message, and his bodily resurrection. And though the Baptist faith and message does not have all of these words, when you look at the Bible, you discover that the work of Christ is like a beautiful diamond and has many facets. And so you find words like atonement, propitiation, reconciliation, substitution, justification, redemption, ransom, sacrifice, and example. And all of these pick up on different facets of what Jesus accomplished for us when he died on the cross and was raised from the dead. Then on page 11, the very last page, I've given you an expanded chart of what I call the four great Christological passages in the New Testament. Uh, For many years, I taught systematic theology at Crystal College, Southeastern, and Southern Seminary, and my favorite doctrine of all was the doctrine of Christology, the person and work of Christ. And when I would teach that particular class, I would spend the first several weeks walking our students verse by verse through John chapter 1, uh, Philippians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 1, and Hebrews chapter 1, because if you lay those four texts down as the foundation upon which you build your understanding of the person and work of Christ, you will have done a wise and good thing. And so with that being kind of as a foundation in your Bible, let's just read very quickly from those selected texts. John chapter 1. Uh, Beginning with verse 1 and looking all the way through verse 18, though we'll not read all 
18 verses. But John chapter 1, his wonderful prologue, John writes, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend, or perhaps even better, the darkness did not overcome him. Then verse 14, and the Word became flesh. We get our doctrine of the incarnation from this. In fact, the Latin word for flesh is incarnate. Incarnation then brought into English. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then drop down to verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. And you may even have a translation that says the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. And so John chapter 1, the marvelous prologue of John, a strong, strong statement concerning the person of Jesus Christ. Take your Bible and join me in the book of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and beginning with verse 5 and reading through verse 11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a slave and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, therefore, God also has highly exalted him, given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Turn to the right one more time to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. I might just note for you that the word all occurs eight times in verse 15 through verse 20. Paul is emphasizing in the strongest possible way the comprehensive lordship of Jesus Christ. And so he is the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or principalities, or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist or hold together. He really does have the whole world in his hands. <clears throat> Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and in him or by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. How? Having made peace through the blood of his cross. And then finally, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. 
Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. Well, Hebrews author, I think it was Luke, what is the Son like? He has appointed him uh, heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. He is the brightness of his glory. He is the expressed image of his person. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had by himself, he needed no help, purged our sins, he now sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Just by a quick comment, what names uh, do the angels receive? They receive the name of servant. What name does the Lord Jesus receive? He receives the name son. The son is superior to the servants. And that is the logic of his argument there. So with that as kind of a biblical foundation, look at page one and let me read for you and along with you the article on God the Son. Christ is the eternal, you ought to underline that word, it's not there by accident, he is the eternal Son of God. Uh, he is in his incarnation as Jesus, he, in his incarnation as Jesus Christ, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus perfectly revealed and did the will of God, taking upon himself human nature with its demands and necessities and identifying himself completely with mankind yet without sin he honored the divine law by his personal obedience and in his and this word was added to the baptist faith and message 2000 in his substitutionary death on the cross he made provision for the redemption of men from sin he was raised from the dead with a glorified body, and he appeared to his disciples as the person who was with them before his crucifixion. In other words, they saw the same Jesus after the resurrection that they had observed and spent time with before the resurrection. He was now resurrected and glorified, but it was still the same Jesus. He ascended then into heaven and is now exalted at the right hand of God, where he is the one mediator, fully God, fully man, in whose person is effected the reconciliation between God and man. He will return in power and glory to judge the world and to consummate his redemptive mission, and he now dwells in all believers as the living and ever-present Lord." Now, what I've done for you in the material that you have tonight is highlight some of the more significant texts from the Baptist Faith and Message. And then I went ahead and pointed out for you some very important texts that for some reason they left out. And I'll not read all of these to you, but some of the key texts in the Old Testament. And again, remember, all of the Bible is Christian scripture. All of the Bible is to be understood as Christocentric. All of the Bible points to Jesus. So I'm not surprised that in Psalm 2, verses 7 through 9, I will declare this decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Psalm 110, verses 1 through 4, teach us that he is a king priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
Isaiah 7, 14 affirms his virgin conception. Isaiah 53, 6 speaks very specifically to his substitutionary atonement. But I went ahead and included for you the totality of Isaiah. And there's a misprint there. It should actually be Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. So I just noticed that then. But that is the fourth of the great suffering servant songs of Isaiah. And again, perhaps the key verse of that wonderful song is verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Then if you look on page 2. Moving to the New Testament, Matthew 1, 18 through 23, speaks of his birth. Matthew 3, 17, at his baptism, speaks of the fact that he is the beloved son in whom God is well pleased. Matthew 8, 29 is an instance where you have a demon correctly recognizing that he is the son of God. And then at the bottom of page 2, I included Matthew eleven twenty seven because... If I did not put Matthew eleven twenty seven in front of this verse, I promise you, you would most likely think that that is found in the Gospel of John. In fact, sometimes people will argue, yes, the Gospel of John has a theology of Jesus that says he is divine, but you don't find that same kind of theology in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, yes, the Gospel of John has a strong theology of the sonship of Jesus, but you don't find that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke in the same kind of a way. Well, Matthew eleven twenty seven, all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the One to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Page 3, Matthew 16, 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Just a moment ago, we looked at John 1, 1 through verse 5 and 1, 14 and 1, 18. But then look in the middle of page, John 10, 30. I and my Father, we are one. And then again, the Baptist faith and message wisely and rightly includes Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Uh, Colossians 1, 13 through verse 22, and I would not begrudge that at all. Top of page 4, 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And then also Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 is included as well. Now, very interestingly, I then include for you on the remainder of page 4 and also page 5 some very important texts that for some reason are not listed in the Baptist faith and message statement on the Son. You say, why? I don't know. I really struggled as I went through. These are just texts, by the way, that are on the top of my head. I mean, when I teach theology, these are texts that just naturally I include in helping my students develop a correct and right and biblical understanding of who he is and what he did. And so, to my amazement, Genesis 3.15 is not there. And that's called the Protevangelium, the first preaching of the gospel, where after Adam and Eve have sinned, God says this to Adam, Eve, and the snake, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, you shall bruise, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his seal. And actually, the better translation, I think, is that which says, he shall crush your head, 
and you will bruise his heel. Genesis 12, 1 through 3 affirms to us that he will be the son of Abraham. He will be a descendant of Abraham. Genesis 49, 10, that he will be a descendant of Judah. Numbers 24, 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. Deuteronomy 18, 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him shall you hear. And then perhaps one of the most important texts in all the Bible, 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, he's speaking to King David, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? Forever. I will be his father. He shall be my son. Now, Solomon's in view as well as the Lord Jesus. If he commits iniquity, which Solomon did, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. And as Don Carson has well said, the only way that David's kingdom can be established forever is that there is a king after a king after a king after a king after a king that never ends, or there is a king who never ends. And it's not the former because there is not a Davidic king today sitting on David's throne on earth. But there is a Davidic king sitting in heaven on a throne, and his name is Jesus. And he is coming again, and he will establish once more on this earth as well during the millennium the physical earthly manifestation of the Davidic kingdom. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, which talks about the Son of Man is not in the Baptist faith and message scripture references. Micah 5, 2, which talks about Bethlehem as his birthplace is not in the Baptist faith and message references. Zechariah 12, 10, which is one of the most striking messianic promises in the Bible. I will pour on, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. And grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. And then perhaps the most striking statement in all the Bible concerning the deity of Christ. John eight fifty eight. Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. And he makes a connection of his own self-understanding with Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14 when Moses at the burning bush was told that he would be the deliverer of the children of Israel. And he says to the one speaking, who do I say has sent me? And God says, you tell them, I am that I am has sent you. By the way, if you think that that is not what Jesus was doing, go back and read uh, John chapter 8 verse 59 and you'll discover they tried to kill him. Because they knew he was making himself equal with God. And then a very important verse for the atonement. First John 2, 1 and 2. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. 
And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. First John 4.10, and this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And finally, Revelation 5, 6, all these verses, wonderful, important, Christological verses not listed in the Baptist faith and message. I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Having seven horns, he's omnipotent. Seven eyes, he is omniscient. The seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth, he is omnipresent. So... Take all of this Bible and try to put it together in some kind of systematic form. What do you come up with? Well, you come up with that nice, concise statement of the Baptist faith and message. Now, let's unpack it for a few moments. Look at the bottom then. Major theological observations, a narrative. The uniqueness of Jesus as God's Son is taught throughout the New Testament. We find this within the Gospels, John 1, 14, 3, 16, and 18, as well as the rest of the New Testament. Most importantly, Jesus himself both explicitly and implicitly taught of his unique relationship as God's Son. During his ministry, he was recognized as the unique Son of God by, first of all, demons. In fact, I was talking class today, yesterday, and I was talking about the fact that in uh, Mark 4 and 5, you have Jesus uh, stilling the storm, calms the waters, the free disciples are freaking out, he's asleep, wake up, don't you care that we perish? And Jesus says, oh, you bozos of little faith, why don't you believe? He speaks, the wind stops, the storm calms, and then the disciples say, who is this one that even the wind and the waves obey him? Well, the answer comes in the next chapter on the lips of a demon who says, oh, you are the son of the most high God. So as I said yesterday, over the disciples, you write the word dumb and over the demons, you write the word smart. Now, they're smart and going to hell. And by the way, I then just took a moment to remind them you can be very smart and go to hell. You can even believe right about Jesus and go to hell. Because James tells us the demons believe and they tremble because they are not related to him as Savior. But the demons, you know what? You will never find one time in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John the demons getting it wrong when it comes to who Jesus is. I mean, if they were taking my systematic theology class, they'd get a hundred. They're still going to go to hell, but they'd get a hundred. Because they don't miss it. Why? Because they know who he is. And so he is acknowledged to be the Son of God by demons, by Satan, and most importantly, by the voice from heaven at his baptism and transfiguration. Of course, that is the voice of his Father. During his ministry then, he acted as one who possessed a unique authority over what? The temple by cleansing it. Over demons and Satan by his exorcisms. Over disease by his healings. Over the Sabbath by his actions. Over death by his raising the dead. And at times even over the law by making plain its true intentions by his teachings. Now, here's how you get at this. Apply all those things to a human person. 
Well, number one, you can't do it. There, there's no human person who did all of those things. So by the very fact that he and he alone did all of this, if this is all I had, I would be forced to draw the conclusion that there is something divine about this individual who was a first century Galilean peasant whose name was Jesus. Well, it gets better. He assumed or took to himself, if you like, the divine rights or prerogatives of what? Forgiving sins, which is something only God can do. Claiming that one's eternal destiny was grounded in a relationship to him. Claiming that he would ultimately judge the world. I mean, think about it. Somebody walks up to you today and says that ultimately, uh, whether you go to heaven or hell depends upon your relationship to me. And I'm eventually going to be the one who judges the world in terms of total, absolute, final, climactic judgment. You would say that person needs to be in a padded cell. They need to have a jacket around them. And we need to watch them very carefully. By the way, what did his own mother and brothers think about him as he began his public ministry. They came to take him home because they thought he was mad. And C.S. Lewis was right. He is either the Lord, he is a liar, or he is a lunatic. He is one of the three. He did not give us the opportunity to go in any other direction. Well, he also maintained that he was greater than all who had preceded him. He was greater than Abraham. He was greater than Jacob. He was greater than Moses, which you know flipped out first century Jews. In the New Testament, Jesus is accorded such divine attributes. He's called the creator. He is said to be preexistent. In a number of instances, he is specifically referred to as God. In John 1.1, 1, 1, 1, 20.28, Titus 2.13, Hebrews 1.8, and I also think, it's debated, but I also think that Romans 9, 5 and 1 John 5, 20 are speaking of Jesus as God as well. Therefore, it should be remembered that the use of this title, God for Jesus, is found in passages written by Jewish Christians whose scriptures begin with the statement, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, when John 1 tells me he made everything, when Colossians 1 tells me he made everything, when Hebrews 1 tells me he made everything, maybe John, Paul, and Luke were wrong. I don't think so. But don't insult my intelligence by saying to me, well, I know what it says, but they didn't really think he was God. Yes, they did. There's no way to read John 1 Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 and draw any other conclusion than those authors believed that Jesus of Nazareth was God. Now, they may be wrong. I don't think so. But don't try to manipulate the text in some way that causes it to say something it really is not saying. Next paragraph then. Although the human nature of the Son was denied by first Crystal, the first Christological heresy called docetism is clearly taught throughout the New Testament. Docetism, by the way, comes from the Greek word dokeo or docetic, which means appearance. And the first century docetists argued that Jesus really was not 
fleshly. He was not really a human. He only looked like he was human. He only appeared to be human. In essence, they basically said he was something along the lines of a phantom or a ghost. I think that John, in his gospel, was countering that. Which is why after the resurrection, he says to Thomas, well, Thomas, why don't you put your hands in my nail prints and in my side? At the uh, Sea of Galilee, what does Jesus do? He sits down there with them and they have a fish dinner together. And so the Gospel of John tries to help us understand that even after the resurrection, he is still a fully human individual. So he is indeed unique as God. He is unique in terms of his full humanity. He is fully God and fully man. Next paragraph. His virginal conception. You say virginal birth. Actually, virginal conception is more accurate theologically. Uh, There's really no such thing as a virgin birth. It's a virgin conception. All right. His virginal conception in no way minimizes his full humanity. In other words... The incarnation does involve all the things that would be expected with a real human being coming to this world. He had a human birth. He was circumcised on the eighth day. And so the Bible affirms he does indeed possess a true human nature. He was tempted in all points as we were, yet without sin. He experienced sorrow and agony. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He became weary. In fact, in John 11, we understand he wept. Shortest verse in the Bible, John 11:35. Jesus wept. He cried, and he cried real tears. In other words, he was fully possessing flesh and blood. And one of the most amazing statements in Hebrews 5:8, he learned obedience. In other words, he grew up. Just like every normal boy grows up, he went through the time of being a baby. He went through the time of being a, a young adolescent. He made his way through puberty. He lived as a teenager. He lived as a young adult. And, of course, his life was cut off around his 30th year. But he progressed through all the stages that any other boy or girl would have gone through as a regular, normal, real human being. The only exception is he did not have any sin, which must have made it really, really difficult for his brothers and sisters. I could think of a lot of things I would prefer rather than living with a brother who was always perfect. I mean, it's bad. It just, I mean, how do you deal with that? He never gets a spanking. Even when he got fussed at, his parents were in the wrong. He wasn't, so they probably had to apologize to him. I mean, how do you deal with that? I mean, I can understand why they were slow to believe. I can understand why they thought he was crazy. In fact, I think they probably wanted him to be crazy. They wanted to get him. Because it had to put up with that all those years. So, anyway, that's the only difference between all the rest of us in terms of his full humanity. Well, now we move into talking about what he did. He is the one mediator between God and man. Because of his sinless life, he could bear the penalty of sin that all humanity deserves. And I know I've said this before, but it's worth being reminded of. In recent surveys, to my utter horror... Those who claim to be evangelical, Bible-believing Christians, when asked the question, do you believe that Jesus sinned while he walked on this earth, 27% of those who claim to be Bible-believing evangelicals say, yes, I believe Jesus committed sin when he was on the earth. Number one, that reveals incredible biblical ignorance. 
Number two, it also reveals gross theological stupidity. Because, brothers and sisters, if he sinned, then he needs a Savior. And therefore, if he sinned, he could not have bore in his body your sins and my sins. He could not have paid the penalty of death that you and I rightly deserve to pay. Well, the Bible speaks beautifully about this. By grace, he became a curse for those under the curse. Galatians 3, 1 Peter 2. He satisfied the righteousness of God, Romans 3. Thus, by offering himself once... For all time, he brought about for sinful humanity expiation of sin. That is, our sins were taken away. And propitiation from the divine wrath. He took the wrath of God, poured out on him at Calvary that you and I rightly deserve to have poured out on us. Thus, in so doing, he brought to us a host of benefits such as justification, peace, reconciliation, forgiveness, adoption as sons, being born again, dying to sin, being raised in newness of life, and receiving the gift of eternal life. All of that, all of that and more done for us by his death on the cross. In addition to these present benefits, though, there awaits for his followers the resurrection of the body, a joyous reunion with Christians who died. Our faith will someday turn to sight, and we will be able no longer to sin, and we will participate with the Son of God in the judgment. Particularly, we will be there judging the angels, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2. So out of that, let me highlight as we move to close five major observations for your consideration. The Baptist Faith and Message sets forth the article, Son of God in somewhat of a chronological manner. And I'd not seen that before, before Mark Rafel, a friend of mine at the Baptist College of Florida, pointed that out. In fact, he notes that Philippians 2, 5 through 11 provides a nice scriptural framework for a chronological exposition of the person and work of the Son of God. And so, what do we find? First, God is the pre, or Jesus is the preexistent Son. Philippians 2, 6. The term preexistent conveys the claim that the existence of God the Son did not begin with his earthly life. Now, sometimes when I want to play uh, the mischievous theologian, I will say to my students, now listen carefully. There was a time when Jesus did not exist. But there was never a time when the Son did not exist. Oh, now it makes sense, doesn't it? Jesus did not exist in eternity past. Jesus came into existence at the virgin conception. In other words, the Son of God, who is fully divine at that moment in time, added to himself a fully human nature. So, the Son has always existed. But the man Jesus came into being in Bethlehem. There was a time when Jesus did not exist. There's never been a time when the Son did not exist. In other words, the BFNM rightly highlights the preexistence by two key concepts. He is eternal and he is the Son of God. In contrast then to the ancient heresy of Arianism, which is the modern day uh, heresy, the Jehovah's Witnesses, Baptists affirm that Christ existed before time. In fact, Christ always was. 
Christ always is and Christ will always be. There never was a time when the Son was not. Furthermore, Christ is the Son of God. And by that declaration, we affirm that he eternally possessed equality in essence or being with God the Father. So God the Son, preexistent. He is God. Number two, God the Son humbled himself. Philippians 2, 7 and 8. God the Son became incarnate, which means in flesh, as Jesus the Christ. The BFNM 2000 committee made a significant improvement over the BFNM 1963 statement. The 63 statement says, He taking upon himself the demands and necessities of human nature. Well, a foster mother temporarily may take upon herself the demands and the necessities of motherhood without actually being a mother. Thus, the Baptist Faith of Message 2000 changed it and says, taking upon himself human nature with its demands and necessities. In other words, the 2000 revision sets forth the full humanity of Jesus stronger and better and more clear in my judgment than the earlier edition. Thus, the incarnation of Jesus, the uniting of God and man, became a permanent union. You ought to mark that. A permanent union. Today... He remains and he forever will remain the God-man. In other words, some people think, well, <coughs> he was a human while he was on earth. But when he went back to heaven, he was just God. No, 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 no. The wedding of deity and humanity is permanent. He is permanent. He is now and forever the God-man. He is now and forever Fully God, fully man. There is a glorified man who sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. That's why 1 Timothy 2, 5 says what? There is one mediator between man and God, the man, the man, Christ Jesus. And by the way, 1 Timothy is strong in affirming his deity elsewhere, but very clear in affirming his humanity right there. Third. The Spirit of God conceived the incarnate Son in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The Baptist faith, the message states, Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. It is the uh, tragic that we find today an increasing number of Baptists that prefer the phrase born through the Virgin Mary. Well, if you know your history, you'll discover that this phrase is found in the heretical teachings of some second century Gnostics. It's even found in the teachings of the more radical, crazy, loony end of the Anabaptists of the 16th century. No. In this false view, Jesus brought his human nature with him from heaven. But this teaching denies that the crusher of Satan came from the seed of woman, Genesis 3.16. It repudiates Paul's teachings that Christ is the seed of Abraham, Galatians 3:15 and 16, and it mythologizes Scripture's teaching that Jesus literally descended from King David. And so, born through the Virgin Mary, no. Born of the Virgin Mary, yes. Fourth, the greatest humbling of Jesus occurred at his shameful death. The BF&M 2000 committee properly 
added the adjective substitutionary to describe the death of Jesus. You say, why did they need to add that? Because today, even among evangelicals, there are people who are shying away from the doctrine of penal substitution. They are shying away from the idea that God substituted in your place and my place his son. They say that it's not right for somebody to die in the place of another. They will even argue that for us to have such a doctrine is to accuse God and blame God for what they call cosmic child abuse. God abused his compliant, willing, foolish son. That's what your theology of penal substitution does. Well, uh, number one, I don't think that's what it does. Number two, I don't have an option but to affirm substitutionary, penal substitutionary atonement. You say, why? Because it's clearly taught in the Bible. He died in my place, and he paid the full penalty of my sin. One more time, Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've led each to go his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, not you, not me, on him, the iniquity, the sins of us all. In fact, uh, one Baptist theologian who doesn't believe in substitutionary atonement says, well, I have to admit, that sure sounds like substitutionary atonement in Isaiah 53, 6. I just think Isaiah got it wrong. Well, I at least respect him saying that's what it means. I just think he got it wrong in comparison to those who try to say, well, I know that's what it sounds like, but it really doesn't mean that. Well, no, it really does mean that. It really does mean he died in your place and he paid in full the penalty of your and my sin. Fifthly, God the Son or God the Father has exalted God the Son. The exaltation of Christ involves his resurrection, number one, his ascension, number two, his seating at the right hand, number three, and his glorious return, number four. Because of the exaltation of Jesus, the New Testament asserts that Jesus is our intercessor. He's praying for you and me right now. He is the cosmic Lord. Nothing escapes his lordship. And he is also the wonderful giver of spiritual gifts, which he does through the ministry of the Holy Spirit for the building up of the body of Christ, the church. Jesus literally, physically, I probably should have added the word bodily, rose from the dead. Jesus then literally, physically, bodily ascended into heaven. And he literally, physically, bodily sat down at the right hand of God the Father. He sat down as king. He sat down as our priest. And as our high priest, he could sit down because he had completed perfectly his priestly service of making atonement for sin. Jesus the Son will return. I got it right this time. Personally, visibly. Well, I need to still add physically, bodily, and gloriously. Thus, Baptists affirm that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the incarnate Son, the sacrificial Son, the reigning Son, and <clears throat> the returning Son. The gospel then are the good news sinners own God the Son. And again, of all the articles that we will study through our Baptist Faith and Message survey, none is more central and none is more crucial than that which we've looked at tonight, the article on God the Son. Let's pray. Father.
We thank you for your son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he indeed loved us so much. He came into this world as a missionary. Yes, he left home and he came to this fallen, evil, sinful world that would scorn him, ridicule him, reject him, and crucify him. And yet you three days later, by your glorious power, raised him from the dead. And today he sits at your right hand as King of kings, Lord of lords. He is indeed the most glorious, beautiful, wonderful, magnificent thing in all of heaven. Heaven loves your Son. And Father, if heaven loves your Son, we need to love your Son too. We need to love him. We need to honor him. We need to worship him. And we need to serve him. And so, Lord... May we indeed have the mind of Christ, a mind of service, a mind of humility, a mind that placed the needs of others ahead of his own well-being. Hallelujah. What a Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.